Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Psalms chapter 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. For their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed out your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes, when you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit was embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Father in heaven, we ask that this morning, as we uh, get this time this morning together, to, to take an extended period of time to, to reflect and to meditate upon what the psalmist says here in Psalm 73. Uh, the way in which that picks up an issue that many of us experience in life. And as we hear the way in which he wrestled with it and then the solution that you give to him that you invite us to take hold of, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear this word too, uh, to be able to see the problem, but even more to be gripped by who you are as the solution to that problem. And that this would give us joy in our walk with you. It would give us a sense of perspective on the reality of life. And in this way, we could live well in this world in a way that honours you and that's genuinely good for us. And so we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know what your situation in life is like, but for many of us, one of the things that just makes life a bit more difficult are jerks. People who are just difficult to be around. They're arrogant, they are self-absorbed, and what makes them particularly difficult often is that they're often very successful. And when you get that combination of them being extremely successful 
and extremely jerky. It just is incredibly difficult to be around them. It's difficult just to just kind of be in the world with them there. And as someone who kind of takes an interest in broader sort of world affairs, it's felt to me over the last sort of 20 years of my life that America has given us a bit of a masterclass in this. <laughs> we go from Bill Clinton, who was in his day and age the kind of world-class, charismatic, charming, uber-successful jerk that just treated women as sex objects left, right and centre. Uh, the fact that he kind of took flights on the Leader Express as an old man is no surprise if you know the guy's career. To Trump, who we don't even need to discuss in that space there, it's just kind of obvious his kind of character defects. But even more in the last week or so, the uh, biographer for Obama has kind of made it clear to people based on his interview of Obama's girlfriends before he got married that Obama's just better at hiding it. He's exactly the same. Obama is also someone whose entire career has been just using people and not caring about people or even caring about the, the, the kind of causes that he fronts up. He's just very, he's a hollow man who's self-absorbed and is just very successful at it. But that on the big scale has kind of been America's gift to the world. But you find it even on the domestic scale. One of the TV shows that my mum inflicted on me when I was growing up, she wanted to watch it so I had to watch it with her was an Australian sitcom called Mother and Son, which was this really good-natured, um, but a little bit of a loser um, kind of main character, and his older, increasingly decrepit mum, and just the interactions every episode between the two of them. And what made it just all the more painful in those interactions between the two of them was the brother, the dentist, the successful one, who constantly cheated on his wife, who didn't care about mum, who was absolutely self-absorbed, and have a guess which of her two sons the mum thought was just amazing. Here's the hint, it wasn't the good one that was living with her and taking care of her, it was the super successful jerk. That so often is the script in family lives, that it's often the successful kid who actually doesn't even honour mum and fart dad, but is successful rather than the ones that are there for them, but not as successful, but are decent people, so often are the apple of the eye. And it just makes life painful. It makes you reevaluate your life choices. And this is what it's like for the psalmist. As the psalmist reflects upon the problem of the uber-successful jerk, he finds his faith all but gives way. It's so painful that it actually disrupts things for him. Listen to how he describes it in that sort of first big stanza, verse 3, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. This is what the wicked are like, down in verse 12, always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. As he looked at them, he was like, I'd rather be one of them, because their life is gravy. They have it made. And it's just, they go from one success to the next without any trouble. Their investment portfolio just constantly increases. There is no comeuppance. Their streets are just paved with gold. And it's not just that they have the money, everything else goes right for them as well in life. Here, verses four and five. 
They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. They have the health, they have the strength, they have the peace in life to enjoy all the things that wealth can give. It's not just that they have wealth and all the rest of their life is miserable, which you could kind of go, oh, well, at least I'm satisfied with that. No, they get everything. But there's nothing really lacking in their life, realistically speaking. They've got the lot. Everything is handed to them on a silver platter. And then we're told precisely because of that, they're jerks. Hear it from verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice, with arrogance. They threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Precisely because everything they've touched in life turns to gold, they just see themselves as the most important person in the world. Everything that life has happened to them teaches them that they can do what they want and it works. And so precisely because that's how they've experienced life, that's how they live. They mock people that try and suggest to them that they should restrain. They are abusive when people call them on their behaviour. They're happy to push people around and inflict pain in order to get what they want. As they look over heaven and earth, they lay claim to it. It's their world. You and I just happen to be living in it. And that is their entire approach to life, arising out of what a charmed existence they have had. They are jerks and they are uber successful. And there's nothing you can point to in their life to suggest to them that experience says you shouldn't do that. And so here's the final kicker in verses 10 and 11. Therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, what would God know? Does the Most High know anything? You're kind of by this point expecting that the psalmist will go, therefore people turn away from them because who likes a jerk? But the psalmist goes, now look at life as it actually is. People turn towards them because they're like that. I mentioned Bill Clinton and Trump and Obama. There is a fourth one in that set, George Bush. George Bush, who was a bit of a loser, I think, as a president. I think what he did in Iraq and the rest of it was just diabolically bad. But if you look at him as a man, he is far better than the other three. Since the Iraq War, he has spent his life painting the pictures of the American soldiers who died in that war. Now, I'd be a little bit more impressed if he painted the pictures of all the innocent civilians that died in those wars that he started in Iraq, but it's at least a start. You can't imagine Bill Clinton, Obama or Trump doing that with the, the latter part of their life, which is recognising that their presidency had a butcher's bill that other people had to pay for, you can't imagine out of the other three men. Have a guess which of those four men is not highly regarded by people, that no one particularly is kind of a fanboy of, of that particular man. It's the nice one in the set. The other three have fans. The other three have loyalists. The other three have people that see they that walk on water. 
And they see them that way precisely because they're jerks who are super successful. It's the nature of the human heart and the human existence. We don't like jerks, but when they're really successful, so often tr people treat them as their north star. They don't see them the way in which they're actually shabby. They don't see them as second-hand car salesmen or strip joint operators. They see them as some sort of demigod for whom the entire universe revolves around them. They're just a charming rogue. And precisely because of that, it does real harm. People turn from God. And they go, given the success of this person, well, what God has to say might be nice, but it's clearly useless. What does God actually know about how life is actually to be lived? And that is the picture the psalmist paints for us. It is a picture of a real problem. And that real problem generates a second problem. That's the uber-successful jerk, but then that generates a second problem of the bitter believer. Listen again to how the psalm begins. Verses 1 to 3. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. It's a faith statement based on what God's word and promises has told the ear of the psalmist, he'll confess that to be true. But what his eyes tell him as to what life is actually like tells him that God might be good to Israel, but life is good to the wicked. You can have God or you can have life. Which one of those two is better for you? Which one is better? And he finds himself envying the wicked in their wickedness because they live a charmed existence. And so as he reflects on this, having painted that picture again back as he moves, picks it up in verse 13, he sees that he's been caught in a mugs game. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. As he looks at things, he does a sober assessment. That charmed existence these guys have, I don't have any part of that. That's not what my life is like. I don't have that kind of success. Life doesn't go like that for me. I don't go through life where I don't even catch the sniffles. I've got actual health issues. At every point, my life is different from these guys. I get the normal suffering that human beings get in this world. These guys seem to be immune from it. And as a follower of Jesus, I get some extra ones. There's extra stuff that you suffer for when you follow Jesus that you wouldn't have to if you didn't. And so these guys don't even get the normal share. I get the normal share, plus I get more. This is dumb. I don't understand what I'm even doing in this game. Life is too good for the ungodly and it's too costly for me. It's a sober assessment. He's not trying to make it easy for himself by trying to pretend it's not there or by finding some sort of simplistic, shallow answer that just means he doesn't have to think about it. 
He's grappling with it. But you can see in the next couple of verses that he's being very responsible in how he's grappling with it. Listen to how he puts it. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. He's looking at it soberly, but he's not preaching his doubts to people. He's not pretending life's not the way that he's seeing it, but he's not letting everything hang out. He recognises he has an obligation to his brothers and sisters. He has an issue and he's wrestling with it, but he's not going to say, I want a podium for everyone to hear all of my sort of concerns and how it's not making sense to me right now. I want to be the preacher for a while in order everyone to see just how much I'm struggling with this faith. He still approaches it in a way that's responsible. He's looking at it in the reality in the eye, but he's struggling with it. And he finds he can't solve it until he enters the sanctuary. And this is the bit where, if you're like me, you just go, really? You entered a religious building and all of a sudden, magically, your brain makes two plus two equal four. Really? That was the solution? You entered a religious building, a sanctuary. Well, you need to stop it, I think, just for a moment and think about what the temple is in Jerusalem in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the temple is the house of God, literally. Old Testament saints grasp that God was bigger than the temple, bigger than creation. There was more to God than the temple. But when the temple got made, the glory of God like a cloud entered the temple. The temple was God's house. It was his palace. It's where his throne was in the Holy of Holies. And so you and I will often use the language of coming into God's presence or drawing near to God. The Old Testament uses that language too. And they mean it literally physically. Do you want to draw near to God in the Old Testament? Here's what you do. You, you work out where Jerusalem is and you start walking towards Jerusalem. Every step you take towards Jerusalem, you're taking one step closer to God physically. When you enter into the temple, you are entering into the presence of God. And when you leave the temple, you are leaving the presence of God. The kind of sort of, what do you call it, the kind of kids talk kind of practical example is really concrete here. You physically enter, you physically leave. When he enters the sanctuary, he's entering into the very presence of God in a very physical way. And the thing for you and I at this point in time in salvation history is all of what that was pointing to is yours and mine on a silver platter. Christ has come and taken his, our human nature into himself. He's joined humanity to God. And then through his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, he's brought us with him. So that he has brought us into the presence of God. If the spirit of God lives in you because you have faith in Jesus, you live your life in the presence of God. Your body now is described as a temple of the Holy Spirit. In the same way that the Old Testament temple was physically God's location, your body is now that. The church is described as the temple of God. When the people of God gather together like this to hear God speak, we come into the very presence of God. 
And so what the psalmist here is talking about, about how when he enters the sanctuary, it all clicks together. That dynamic is on display for you and I as well in our relationship with God, even more so than for him. We can struggle, and like him, we can turn to God in that struggle and enter God's presence before the struggle is resolved. And the very act of doing so often will give you the resources to get a different perspective on the struggle that you're having. And so that's what the psalmist says. Once I entered it and came into the presence of God, I understood their final destiny. I realized I had been looking at it wrongly. Everything I had seen was right. But I hadn't seen the whole picture. I was taking a snapshot and what I needed was a video. And so he then opens up in the final stanza what I would call the sanctuary solution. Two parts, the final end of the wicked and then him getting a better perspective on things at all. Listen from verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Yes, the wicked have a great. Let me give you a, a scene from a movie. Here is a person with his own personal chef eating a meal that he gets to choose exactly what he wants, no expense spared. And you find out that this person in the scene is a murderer. This person was cheating on his wife who loved him. And when she finally found out what he'd been doing throughout their marriage, he murders her in front of their children. And now you see the scene where he's king of the world. He's got his own personal chef. He gets the meal that he wants, exactly what he wants. And you go, do you want to trade places with this guy? Well, the next scene is him being taken out for execution. He's having his final meal. Great meal. If you just take that one little scene, it looks fantastic. But if you see the very next point of the, of the story where his destiny goes, you don't get to just pick part of his life out. Do you want the whole set or do you want nothing of the whole set? It's not bits and, bits and bits. you get to take different bits off the buffet. You either get the whole set or none of the set. Do you want to be the guy? Or don't you? Do you want the nice meal and the death scene? Or would you rather go without the nice meal and not have the death scene? And that's his point about the wicked. The wicked could have a charmed existence all the way up to and including death. But there comes a judgment for all people at the end of life when God judges everyone. And yes, not everyone in this life gets a foretaste of that judgment. That's true. Often it is the case. You do things and God brings things into your life to wake you up as to the consequences of that. That there's often a bit of a cause and effect. You are a grumpy, miserable, annoying person. You tend to be a little bit less, a few less friends around you. That there's a bit of give and take. But for some people, God shows incredible patience with them. God just waits patiently. He doesn't kind of make their life difficult. He gives them a chance to repent. And nothing particularly bad comes their way. The reason why all of us 
have any chance of belonging to God is that's how he's dealt with us at, at some fundamental level. He hasn't wiped us out when we've done what is wrong. He gives us a chance to turn. But some people, when that happens, they never take the chance. Their hearts take hold of that and go, well, I have a charmed existence, I'll get worse. And in doing that, they lead others along with them. Well, that's just how it is. God is gracious, he is kind, he is long-suffering, he is compassionate, he will give people a chance to turn. But at some point in this life or next, God goes, my patience with you is gone. And when that happens, you don't want to be in their shoes. The psalmist says he just wipes them and they are gone. It's as though they were never there. It's as though they were a bad dream. You don't want to be there when God drops the boom. And so he sees that his problem wasn't so much what he saw, but that he was too fixated on one thing of a much bigger story. And while you don't want to envy the wicked, is that one day they have to do business with God. And if they never turn from how they have lived, that is not going to be a pretty sight. And you don't want any part of that. You don't want any portion in that. And so there's nothing there to envy, even if they've got it all laid on now. Because that's not the whole story. But here's the thing that I love about this psalm. That is the lesser truth that he sees when he ends in the sanctuary. That's there, but that's the lesser thing that he just kind of goes, oh yeah, okay, got that worked out. The really amazing thing is where he goes to in the last bit of it. Listen from verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of your deeds. He realises that he was seeing it all the wrong way. To put it in vernacular, he was an idiot. He was treating God as though God was some kind of vending machine. That God's like Santa going, look, if you just love me a bit and be a nice boy and a, naught, a nice not naughty and I can just work it out because I'm keeping a list, I'll fill your stockings with all the stuff you want. You can have that Xbox. You can have that car. You can have that spouse. You can have those wonderful children that sleep really well and are really successful so that you can be proud of them. You can have a successful professional life. You can have everyone knows your name and thinks well of you. You can have it all. Just love me a bit and I'll be the genie that will give you every wish you ever wanted. God just offers you stuff. He's up for grabs. Cut him a deal. That's not what God's offering you. What God comes says, not that I'm offering you stuff, I'm offering you me. You can have 
me. That's what Christianity is. God gives you God. He gives you himself in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Spirit ultimately. And the psalmist is there going, when I was embittered and lost track of that, I was just like a brute beast, an animal. I just reduced life down to how do I reduce the pain and maximise the pleasure? And that's no different than just being a clever animal. But God is offering something so much more than that, the psalmist says. As I go through life, even in the Old Testament, God is not way off in heaven or located and locked just into the temple. He's with me. As I go through life's ups and downs, it's as though God is holding my hand, literally holding my hand as I go through it. That's how close he is to me. As I have to struggle with all the difficulties in life, I don't just have my own resources to draw on. The very wisdom of the creator is there for me. And when life is done and I have to face death, then on the other side of death is God waiting, going, come into glory. I have something so much better for you. That was a grim door you had to go through, but wait till you see what's on the other side, mate. It's a completely different understanding of everything to do with reality and life. And so he takes stock. He realises he has lost track of what really mattered. His real desire was for God all the time, not stuff. If you gave him the choice, give up God and I give you the world, he would say no deal. And yet, having said no deal, for a moment he almost slipped because all he had was God and felt as though he was also entitled to the whole world as well. If you want God and you've got God, what does it matter if you don't get the whole world? If all you get is God, you've got what you wanted. And that's what he realises is the solution to it. The solution is to realise what it is you want and then not to be distracted by that when other people get something else that actually at the end of the day you don't really, really want. Just be nice to be handsome and liked and successful and healthy. I mean, kind of nice. Wouldn't mind it a little bit. It's a joke at that point. It's not that there's anything wrong there, but if you miss out on it, have you actually missed out on anything that really matters? If you love God. And so he says there's two paths. One path walks away from God and separate from God. It might have a great time along the way, but it ends in destruction. And the other path he invites us to come with him is the one where you have God for now and forever and it's beyond glorious. So three quick reflections from this. First one is this. It's fine to struggle. Don't be the kind of Christian or non-Christian weighing it up that tries to make it work by trying to pretend things aren't the way that you see them. See reality for what it is. But see what the psalmist is saying. When you struggle, turn to God in the struggle. Rather than try and solve the struggle and then turn to God, turn to God in the struggle. And that will more often than not make the difference. 
Second one, don't envy the ungodly. Yeah, often they've got cool stuff in their lives. Yeah, God's kind. Deal with it. Don't go looking at that constantly and rehearsing it in your head and going, why do they get to have kids like that? Why do they get to be successful like that? Why that? Just don't do it. See it for what it is. Realise it's a package deal. If you want what they've got, you've got to get the lot. You don't get to pick bits out. And so if you want to face God in anger on the last day, you can possibly have that as well. But you've got the lot. If you don't want the lot, don't go rehearsing the bits in there. Just put it down and walk away. But then here's the last one. At the very start, the psalmist tells us, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And I think it's easy for us to misunderstand what he says there at the start. If I somehow either purify my heart and I make sure that my desires aren't too grubby, God will give me all the stuff that I want. God will be good to those who are pure in heart. Really righteous, good people get to have goodies. And that's not remotely what the psalmist is saying here. He's not saying a certain level of moral purity in your heart gives you goodies because your hearts are grubby. My heart is grubby and it will always be grubby until Christ returns. Your desires will always have yucky stuff in there. It's not that. Rather, a pure heart is a heart that desires only one thing. If I get thirsty and I ask for a glass of water and you bring me a glass and I say, what's in that? And you say, water. And I say, you sure? And you're like, yeah, it's pure water. Nothing else. The purity has to do with nothing else is there. It's just the one thing. And so a pure heart is a heart that desires just one thing. And so Jesus gave us a little story of a merchant buying a pearl. A merchant who's into buying and selling pearls and he finds one pearl and he liquidates all his stock. He sells his house. He crashes his investment portfolio. He's got nothing left but a pearl. And you go, can he businessman? He knows where things are going. He's going to wait until the pearl market goes up and he's going to sell that pearl. He's going to make out like a bandit. And he doesn't. He holds on to the pearl. He's got nothing else. He's in rags. But he has a pearl. And you go, and you're selling it. And he's like, are you insane? I'm not selling this. And you go, mate, that's the whole point. It's, it's a pearl. You, you sell it to someone so that you get stuff. No, 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 I'm keeping it. And you go, mate, it's a pearl. That's all it is, a pearl. And he goes, yeah, it's a pearl. And I'm holding it. And that's what it is to have a pure heart. That's what it is to have a pure heart. It is to desire one thing. And if having that one thing means you let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, because God's kingdom is forever, you do it joyfully. Now, if you get some other stuff as well, you'll take it happily. But you've already made the decision that God is worth it. And that reorientates the whole of life for you. 